You're listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast from Judicial Watch. I'm Chris Farrell, and this is On Watch. Welcome to On Watch, the Judicial Watch podcast, where we take a deep dive on topics that are underreported by the mainstream news media and demand a further look at greater background or context. We also take time to review Judicial Watch investigations and give you the backstory of how we go after corrupt government officials and practices, shedding light on things politicians would rather you forget. Judicial Watch's mission is to promote transparency, integrity, and accountability in government politics and the law. If that appeals to you, then you're in the right place. So follow and rate this podcast on Watch, whether you found us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of the other platforms out there. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating. This week, you're in for a treat, a true inside look at the workings and thinking behind the anti-corruption work of Judicial Watch, because we are joined by Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton. Welcome, Tom. Hey, Chris. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us. And uh, we're going to have time to talk about all sorts of things that our podcast listeners will be interested in. We've been growing week after week by leaps and bounds. Thousands of people are listening and this is really a great format for covering topics and conducting interviews, having real conversations about topics that people don't get much coverage uh, or don't hear too much about, issues that are not discussed anywhere else. Tom, we can cover a lot of topics concerning the work of Judicial Watch. There's a lot of That's stuff right. out there. I'm prepared, to to go for eight, I'm prepared to go for eight hours. Eight hours and just answering with simple yes or no uh, answers <laughs> to every question. Right, right. <laughs> So we're going to remind everyone that Tom has been sworn he's being deposed. He's under oath right now. Everything he says is on the record. Um, but I want to start uh, with your take on the Durham filing last week. And, uh, you know, there's what Durham put out. There's the reaction to it in the last few days. And then, of course, Judicial Watch, we came up with our own 127 pages of uh, related material out of uh, Georgia Tech, of all places. So let's back up, though. Durham filed a conflict of interest motion with the court. He dumped some fun facts into it. What is your take on on this Durham filing in the last week? Well, you know, remember, the filing itself was over whether the lawyers involved had a conflict of interest. So it was for a legal purpose that I think uh, uh, readers of the filing should kind of understand as they're going into it. But as you point out, he put some, quote, fun facts in there, which include that uh, the tech individuals, the the, uh, tech operatives that Hillary Clinton's campaign had been associated with, had spied on Trump's executive office of the president. And uh, what information they gleaned from that is unclear. How it was used is unclear. But it happened. So a lot of the... um, so a lot of the reaction, at least from our side of the philosophical divide, is outrage. And this is a, a radical escalation of the uh, Clinton operation against Trump. I mean, this isn't just uh, opposition research, you know, where you're combing public files and going back through old speeches and highlighting it in, in, the, in the course of a campaign. You know, this is an effort to, well, this is not an effort, but according to Durham, uh, they did it. 
So, I mean, that's all, it's very concerning. The executive Office of the President, the White House, is, uh, is some of the most secure systems in the world, or at least it's ought to be, it, it ought to be. And um, we want more details. You know, now, one of the defenses that had been raised by um, those listed in the Durham uh, complaints or filings, uh, not by name, but everyone knows who they are now, is that, oh, look, we were... We were just patriotic Americans and we had concerns and, you know, it was apolitical, right? Well, these documents that we just uncovered, as you highlight for Georgia Tech, suggest otherwise. They suggest that the tech operatives were obsessive anti-Trumpers talking among themselves about the most extreme uh, conspiracy theories. There's real hysterical language in there. I mean, anybody who says that they were not uh, you know, highly motivated, vindictive anti-Trumpers just read the stuff they put in those emails. So there, there, there's so that's a big that's you know to use the phrase big lie. That's one of the falsehoods that are out there. Now, you know, the big question is, or one of the big questions is, how did these individuals gain um, a view into the executive office of the president? And it looks like we may have the answer. I mean, they've been talked about a defense contractor, uh, a defense, um, now I'm, I'm the name of the organization, DARPA, is, um, you know, this high, basically the, uh, well, you know more about DARPA than I do, Chris. Well, they, they, they invented the internet. The reason why we have the internet is because of DARPA. So it's the, it's the leading edge thinkers. They're always thinking of things to do. Well, hey, what, what's this idea? How can we pursue it? Or I have an idea. Let's, for instance, in this case, let's start vacuuming up internet data and see what we can make out of it in terms of threat analysis, right? So uh, that's how best I understand it. And it looks like these tech operatives had a contract with DARPA to do that type of work. Exactly. So we now know that the tech operatives that Hillary Clinton was associated with, her campaign was associated with, and it's not clear who was paying who and how they were being paid. So, you know, it's the, I'm just trying to be specific here. Uh, had this contract with DARPA. And when you read between the lines and what Durham has filed, uh, this is potentially the contract that they used to gain access to this confidential data and information. And that's that's the dirty little secret when it comes to a lot of folks, whether they're government contractors or, frankly, even folks inside the government who have access to databases, access to records, to uh, any sort of, uh, I'll just call it a technical database, uh, is that people use that for all sorts of reasons. Uh, Some sort of, uh, you know, personally advantageous, uh, whether it has to do with just, you know, getting dirt on somebody or finding out facts or looking up personal details uh, and some for really what this looks like, which is organizational, institutional, political spying. And, you know, the Hillary Clinton and company folks on the left, the, yeah, right, one of the one of the supposed objective fact checkers uh, that's been cited is somebody who writes for Vanity Fair. I find that very funny. Um, but they're, they're saying, no, 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 fake news, fake news. There's no spying. No one said spying. They're, they're getting hung up on semantics now. Uh, but what, the, what the, the point, I think, 
the point I'm trying to get across, and it's trying to highlight something you just said, Tom, is that when you use the sort of access you have from a DARPA contract to technically drill down and penetrate to get into servers or to even just trace the external activity of a server, seeing where people are going and what sites they're looking at, and the target is the executive office of the presidency, guess what? That's spying. I don't care what you call it, but you're politically spying to obtain information against your political opponent. You know, and it occurs to me as as an expert layman in the law that misusing those contracts, if indeed that happened, you know, raises significant uh, additional criminal liability for those involved. So this goes beyond what we previously knew about what the crimes could have been in terms of just you know, my, my thinking on what crimes potentially were happening with, with Hillary Clinton's campaign and, and, and Trump. Um, and this is, aside the crime, this is aside from the crimes by the goons in the Obama administration who were happily spying on Trump. Correct. But, when you, but you know, lying to investigators about what you have, um, you know, that sort of thing, maybe a conspiracy claim or something like that, hiding, hiding spending, uh, which, you know, may violate federal campaign financing laws and things like that. But here we have potentially a conspiracy uh, and and other charges, if, if Durham is going to pursue this, as, as I think he ought to, um, in terms of the misuse of government resources in this regard. And that's that's pretty much that's pretty serious in addition to the other issues I'm raising. So two things I think that have to be addressed because they've been discussed uh, certainly by a lot of folks on the right, uh, not so much on the left, is the nature of the filing. Why dump this sort of information into a conflict of interest pleading to the court? It's not, I mean, this would be, this is actually the, the stuff of an indictment, not a discussion of conflict of interest issues. And then secondly, why put it out on the Friday afternoon before Super Bowl Sunday weekend? Well, the simplest answer to the last question is probably that's when the filings do. <laughs> True. That's probably, they're probably just looking at court deadlines. That is, Yeah. I mean, in, in my experience, and I'm sure you, you know this with lawyers, it's, you know, you, you get the briefs when they're due, you know, not, not before, not after. Um, and if it's after, it's usually they've got some excuses, but um, you know, what, what I'm thinking here is, uh, and Durham filed something else uh, just last night, trying to explain why he put the material in there. And you know, he's been he's uh, he's he's very conscious. It looks like of the political blowback they're getting from uh, the uh, Hillary Clinton media is that uh, look what Sussman's saying is look this is not material. What I said to the FBI uh, general counsel. Uh, was just a tip. It's not the end of the world, and you can't prosecute me for, you know, playing games as to what who I was hiding, uh, in terms of what I was hiding in terms of my actual representation, which was the Clinton campaign. And I think what Durham is saying in these filings is, no, 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 this is a bigger deal, because the motive here was extreme. I mean, they had this massive spy operation against Trump, and he didn't want to talk about it. And that's why it's worthy of a federal prosecution. Uh, and, you know, and potentially, and, and I don't know if this is going to be the case because I've been disappointed before, 
uh, that you know this is a setup for um, further prosecutions, that it's a signal that this case is broader than just this one person. And it's a, it, it educates the public while you know, letting the courts know potentially that there's more here uh, than this just one charge. And that really is the big question. You know, is this going anywhere? In Durham has been operating at a, at a glacial pace. Yeah. It's always, I mean, I, the, the comment I had uh, to another colleague, a friend of a mutual friend of ours, is that if Trump had won uh, a second term, uh, we would now be up to his fifth or sixth impeachment, right? They would have moved <laughs> like lightning right. to, to continue to accuse him of all sorts of, you know, crimes against humanity, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, when the target's on the right, somehow the wheels of justice move at lightning speed and everyone's indicted and tried and convicted and boom, boom, boom. Everything, you know, everyone's brought to court instantly. And, and there's a cast of characters. I don't care if it's Manafort, Flynn, all kinds of people, boy, let me tell you, right on the house and uh, get them in court doing the, the, you know, the perp walk. Uh, lots of good video of that. When you flip it around the other way, there's this excruciatingly slow process. Uh, and of course, you know, justice in this country is very even handed naturally. So what, you know, what is on the long look, what is going on with Durham? This thing is taking forever. Yeah, Chris, so you're, uh, you're exactly right. I have a feeling I'll be saying this a lot uh, today. Look, the Mueller investigation was essentially done in terms of who they're going to prosecute or indict in about six months. Durham was appointed, uh, it will be three years ago, April. He's had three indictments, one of which resulted in a plea agreement that was um, kind of a disaster in the sense that it led to no jail time for a lying FBI lawyer who lied to try to get a secret spy, to successfully get a secret spy warrant. And and that on, lawyer, on that lawyer has been has been reinstated to to good standing. He's now a a happy practicing member of the D.C. bar. No. Yeah. So, you know, that's you know, that's it's a black mark for. You know, the, maybe for future government service, but, you know, he'll he'll be he'll do OK in this decrepit city. Now, on the other hand, the two more recent indictments are, are big deals. I mean, it was Hillary Clinton's number two campaign lawyer uh, and also lawyer for the Democratic National Committee, we should point out, and the Russia operative that her team used to uh, concoct the dossier in part. So, uh, you know, if he goes up the chain, if Durham goes up the chain, um, you know, if this if this work is a start, however late, that'd be good. If it's the end, it's 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 just outrageous. Well, I can I mean, I, you and I could go on for another you know, hour talking about Durham and the investigation of the lack thereof and all the different angles to it. But what I want to do is uh, slide over to another topic. I want to highlight some judicial watch work that uh, really I don't think gets enough attention. Uh, we've had a victory in North Carolina cleaning up voter rolls. Why don't you tell the listeners about the, about that? Yeah, that was a big deal. Now, you know, uh, federal law requires states to take reasonable steps to clean up the rolls. It's called the National Voter Registration Act. People may know it as the Motor Voter Bill, where you know people get registered easily 
at the DMV and other places like that. But one part of the law is, look, you're registering everybody, but you also have to take reasonable steps to clean up the rolls. And needless to say, in part, they don't want to do that. The states don't want to do it. The leftists running the Justice Department don't want to do it, never wanted to do it. And Judicial Watch filed the first private lawsuits to force states to do it. And, um, you know, we've done a series of lawsuits over the last 10 years or so. Uh, uh, we filed three a year or two ago, uh, one against North Carolina, one's against Pennsylvania, one against Colorado in federal court because their voting rolls were a mess. And in North Carolina, we filed the lawsuit. You know, all the leftists went crazy. They came in and tried to end the lawsuit, but it was continuing. And North Carolina said, oh, you know, after Judicial Watch filed this lawsuit, look, we removed 430,000 names from the rolls, which is, of course, exactly what we wanted them to do. <laughs> right. And, you know, here's the other thing. So Judicial Watch is filing these lawsuits and advancing this cause. But, you know, this is actually the job of the Department of Justice. Right. I mean, within the civil division, there's a voting rights section. and the Department of Justice is supposed to is supposed to be doing oversight and enforcement to make sure that the federal law is being carried out in the states, but they don't do it. They look at one half the law, which is get everybody under the sun uh, registered to vote, but they don't look at the other half, which is the point Tom was just making. That is, okay, well then make sure the voting rolls are clean, that they're accurate, right. and since they're not doing it. We have to turn to our own staff and say, go out there and find find instances and, and push them to clean it up. Yeah. And and so, you know, we ended the lawsuit. We settled it in North Carolina. They, you know, we're, we're not crazy lawyers that just sue for the sake of suing. I know some of our opponents like to think that way. You know, if they do what they wanted them to do, we wanted they wanted to, if they did what what we wanted them to do. We ended we, we end the lawsuit. And which is what we did here. We settled with them. Now, the, our lawsuits against Colorado and Pennsylvania continue. I mean, we found, uh, and there are other lawsuits we're planning in New York and California, big counties in Oregon. I think in, in voting rolls totaling 12 million people, I think among all of them, they removed 33 people from the rolls over the last four years. I think just 10 in New York. Imagine New York City. It's crazy. So, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of names that should have been removed, but they removed 33. And, you know, now the left is telling us that we have to mail all these ballots out, right? Everyone's got to be able to vote by mail. Well, you can't, you know, first of all, I don't like that as a matter of principle, uh, because I think it, it, it's um, less secure than voting in person. But the idea that you would do that with the voting rolls being the mess they are, uh, is is something that can't be countenanced, and it makes our efforts to clean up the rolls all the more important. Because as you and, point out, and, no one else is going to do it but for us. Correct. And in the case, I mean, look, here's another one of these phony stories that gets batted around as though it's gospel truth. And that is, I don't know if that you're allowed to say gospel truth anymore, but I just did. I, the here's the. Here's the thing. They look at they'll point at Oregon and they'll say, oh, look, Oregon's been doing vote by mail for 20 years and everything's great. Well, here's the difference. You know, in the instances where voting by mail takes place, the voter initiates the action by saying, hello, 
I am not reasonably available on that on voting day. And I wish to vote by mail. And this is how we're going to do it. And there's an entire process where the actual ballot is witnessed and certified and, and returned. And there's some there's an accountability trail to what to the ballot, as opposed to California, where Governor Newsom sent ballots out to basically every street address in the in the state. And that is a crazed, reckless way of flooding the system with ballots that are unverifiable, untraceable. And, and no one on the left is willing to make that distinction to discuss the sort of traceable, auditable ballot process that's a reasonable vote by mail scenario. I still don't like it, but at least it's verifiable. It's, it's a reasonable approach versus the Gavin Newsom if we can find a street address, we're sending a ballot out. And that is the really abusive manipulation of the voting process in all these vote by mail schemes advanced by the left. Yeah, and you're, you know, you're talking rationally as to, well, how is it we make sure if people are going to vote by mail that we know who they are and we're not mailing ballot applications or ballots to people who are no longer there? Well, one of the ways we do that is to clean up the list like we're doing. And the other way to do that is to have some security or some voter ID connection to the vote by mail. But that's really difficult to do. But, you know, but that's a, that's a we're talking rationally here. The left isn't, isn't interested in conducting our elections rationally. There's this almost maniacal, desperate effort to undermine and attack any election security measure. Because well, they're, really they're all racist, the election obviously. process in and, a way any effort, as and, to, to kind of ruin the confidence that any normal person would have in, in the election systems we have. And any effort to have some sort of surety, some confidence in the system is instantly branded as being a racist plot, which is, you know, that's another dishonest sort of sensationalizing technique that attempts to undermine any legitimate verification process for voting. Yeah, you know, uh, the polls show that voter ID has the support of 80% of the electorate. Uh, cleaning up the election rolls, I mean, who's opposed to that other than these radical extremists? 85% uh, support that. So the more people, you know, you know, people aren't dumb. And, you know, they play the race card and even the people they're supposedly defending by suppressing voter ID laws don't agree with them on this. So when you have more secure elections, I think this is a big, important takeaway. If you want people to participate in our process, we should work to make sure that the process is as secure as reasonably possible. You want people to be able to vote within reason by showing a voter ID, confirming uh, we need to make sure that their citizenship is confirmed. Uh, and if people think their votes are going to be counted and not negated by voter fraud, they're more likely to play in the game. So this victory in North Carolina, um, you know, it's a settlement in the legal process, but the, the bottom line is 430,000 inactive uh, names on the voting rolls are being cleaned up. And so North Carolina will have a, a more accurate, uh, more valid, legitimate voter roll than uh, it did 
months ago, certainly in the last election cycle. But that's just one. I mean, you mentioned in passing uh, other places where we've had victories, where we've been responsible for removing or cleaning up voter rolls, removing people that have died, people that have moved, people that are felons. There's all sorts of reasons why people should not be on the voting rolls. Um, and, you know, Los Angeles County was another 1.5 million in that county alone. We've had victories in Ken uh, Kentucky entered into a consent uh, arrangement, consent right. decree. So there's been substantial progress. I don't know anybody else in the country that's doing this. Yeah, you know, the frightening thing is you're you're practically speaking, you're right. I can think of one or two other groups that are interested in this issue um, who want to clean up the rolls. Uh, but the whole voting rights arena is geared towards undermining voting rights by making it easier to commit fraud. So those of us on the side of protecting the securing the right to vote by protecting it from fraud, uh, we're few and far between, certainly in this area. And you're, and you're highlighting that there are millions of names have been clean, millions of names have been cleaned from the rolls just because of a few lawsuits by Judicial Watch. I mean, imagine uh, you go back if the Justice Department was doing its job. Correct. And this is just really us asking unpleasant questions. And, and then when they ignore it or they engage in double talk, we sue them to compel them to do their jobs. And then suddenly right. they go, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, we, we should have been doing this for years and you caught us. And so now we'll, we'll, we're going to do what we should have been doing you know, for the past decade. That's right. And, and the Supreme Court has kind of validated our analysis and our process here. And the good news is sometimes we don't even need to sue. I mean, we, we, we alert jurisdictions and states and they say, hey, you know, you're right. We haven't been cleaning up the rolls and we cleaned them up just now. I can there remember was a county in, in Pennsylvania. I, I don't I don't I forget the name of the county, so I don't want to screw that up. So we sent one of our notices there. And like within weeks, they wrote back and said, you're right. We just removed 69,000 names. Thanks. You know, uh, I can remember this is years ago, but I had a speaking engagement to a civics a civic group in uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, when I got up to speak and I gave a talk and then took questions and answers afterwards. And the guy popped up in the back of the room and said, hi, I'm the deputy secretary of state for Georgia. And I want to thank you uh, for sending us a letter reminding us to clean up the voting rolls in a particular county. Uh, and so there's some instances where there's elected officials or even appointed government officials who actually are looking for us to please send them a letter saying, hey, look, we've done an analysis and you're out of whack. You need to really take a look at this uh, because, it, it, frankly, it's sort of like a friendly subpoena. <laughs> it's an effort. They're, they're, they're waiting for somebody to please push them to do the right thing. And uh, even letters from us or public attention drawn by our efforts help them to do the job that they should be doing. Yeah, and, and, and there are public officials who are very much aware of our work and have uh, even without our prodding, come in and cleaned up. I mean, we've got, we've educated, and uh, many people don't understand this, but Judicial Watch is an educational foundation. So our work, you know, we do FOIAs and suits and things in a way to educate people about what the law requires. And that's had remarkable success, not only in getting others to clean up the rules without our even having to say or do anything, 
But, you know, even in the broader cases of the Freedom of Information Act, you know, no one, you know, I don't know about you, Chris, but I didn't know much about FOIA before I began at Judicial Watch. My guess is no one outside those who were involved in it in a professional way uh, really cared much about the Freedom of Information Act and open records laws. Now it's an essential tool that is widely known uh, by uh, certainly our, our supporters, tens of millions of Americans who want accountable government. And uh, everyone knows about FOIA. And it's because of Judicial Watch. And, and, I, and I don't say that lightly. You know, you, know, you don't want to take credit for, you know, take, take credit where credit isn't due uh, in a crazy way. But I have, I have little doubt that there'd be uh, any broad understanding of FOIA but for Judicial Watch's work in that area. And, you know, imitation is the highest form of flattery. And there's a lot of folks who have now seen the success that we've had in this area and they're jumping on board. And, you know, I welcome them. Fine. You know, ask lots of questions of the government. That's a good idea. That's how that's we get great. accountability. And well, and that's what's great for us from our, that perspective is our job is to help those people ask those questions. Correct. So Correct. We're, we're happy to help others do the Freedom of Information Act requests demand accountability from their elections officials. I mean, it's not because we, we don't think we're the only ones allowed to do it, that we do this work. We do it because it's necessary. And the more people asking questions, the better. Frankly, even if it's just, set, as far as I'm concerned, the more people asking different questions about one topic, the better. Because the government has different answers to different people, depending on the way the question's asked. <laughs> that is exactly more, right. Yeah. More power to... All of our friends and colleagues, not only in the conservative movement, and to the degree there are journalists actually doing it, yep. just keep on keeping on. So listen, another thing I think that it's really very important Judicial Watch work that needs additional coverage and explanation, because it's really quite important. And uh, it, it's also taken substantial time, effort, resources, brain power, everything else, is the fact that Judicial Watch has been out in California in court in a 27-day-long in a trial. And I, I'd like you to let our listeners know what all that time, energy, and effort is about. Yeah, I mean, it's 27 days in court time. It's kind of Correct. like, you know, uh, but it's actually two months. So the trial was essentially two months long. It's like dog years. That turns into yeah, how many yeah, years? Yeah, because you know? the court's only in session part of the day. So, you know. So you're there for a longer period of time. So we had four lawyers out there pursuing a taxpayer lawsuit in California. And by that, I mean, taxpayers can challenge um, illicit expenditures by government entities and stop it. And in the case of California, there was a, a quota mandate that was passed related to the board membership of private corporations. And the, the, the requirement was that one had to have a certain number of women on boards. So that leads to quotas because that means that you either have to have the woman there or extend, you know, expand the number of board seats uh, to bring more women on board. And you have to exclude men from applying for those board seats in order to make, make sure the quota is being filed. So, so this is fascinating. Say, this is fascinating on a couple of levels. So you yeah. have a law in California that demands quotas for corporate private corporations must have a quota system based on sex, male and female uh, quotas for, for controlling private corporations. California institutes this law. 
But the beauty of this situation in California is that ordinary taxpayers can challenge it. They can go into court and say, whoa, why are we spending government money to enforce this law? And so Judicial Watch represents uh, private persons, taxpayers of Cal in California who object to it. Uh, and then we get into court and it turns into a couple of months in court fighting this. Tom, what's, what are some of the, the either the weirder or the more interesting takeaways from this, this California law that's being challenged? Well, I, I just just to make sure that people understand what the law is in California, the Constitution has a broad prohibition, even broader than the federal Constitution and federal law against sex discrimination. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's equal protection of the laws, you know, those old fashioned terms. And in this case, uh, they're trying to allege that the economy is helped. Companies are helped by these uh, sex quotas. Uh, and. Uh, what I think is interesting is uh, when you see all the justifications, because the government had all of these experts come in, self-appointed experts in many circumstances, come in and try to justify the uh, or defend the indefensible. But they have what I would call the critical theory approach. That you need to do this and it's the, you know, it's. Every justification you could think of uh, from the academic left to justify uh, these unlawful quotas. And, you know, just as we hear about critical race theory, there's, quote, critical feminist theory. And that's on trial. So it's before the judge. And we uh, are um, meaning there's no jury. So the judge will decide in the end. So the trial's over and we uh, hopefully we'll get a, a ruling, you know, in a month or two. And this is a is I don't believe and I, obviously this was a point of much evidence being entered and lots of discussion in court. Uh, but, the, you know, even the person who authored the bill has admitted that there's no social science. There's no uh, study technically proving any of this. There's no causation is just this sort of notion that gee wouldn't it be nice and that really formed the foundation for the law yeah you know and and if you're going to engage in this type of activity you know the government has to say look this person was discriminated against and therefore they need to you know there needs to be a remedy right and it's narrowly tailored that, that's you know none of that was shown to be the case here i mean there were women on the boards before this law was passed so you know there's there's no but they were just doing it because this is the, as I say, this is the critical theory approach. And, you know, what's troubling about this case, and, the, and they, uh, there's another case that we're pursuing because they, they added on top of this, they passed a subsequent law to require other quotas for other protected categories or categories they think ought to be protected, um, you know, uh, race and, and, gen and, and gender identity and things like that, L you know, the LGBTQT thing. Um, it's like they're just they're trying to overthrow the anti-discrimination laws we've had in place for 50, 60 years in this country. And, you know, and the conservatives think, oh, well, you know, those laws just began in the 60s. No, it began with the 14th Amendment, where people Correct. have equal protection under the law. Correct. Without regard to 
uh, their status, their sex, race, or other, uh, uh, other status. So they're trying to overthrow our constitutional protections against uh, the discrimination like this. And you know, so when the left says they're against discrimination, don't you believe it? They're, they're in court now trying to, to defend it. Well, it's selective discrimination. It's the, 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 a, a form of discrimination that they like, that they think is okay. Yeah, you know, it's, um, you know, it's the, uh, it's the Orwellian, you know, some are more equal than others. I want to also touch, I want to also touch if we can on uh, more judicial watch work that I think is, is really stunning because there's a level of creepiness associated with this legal claim that I think our listeners will be outraged by when they, they appreciate it fully. So obviously, January 6th is an enormously contentious issue. There's all sorts of turmoil and reporting on it in the news. Judicial Watch has taken the approach of, well, let's get all the facts out. And one of the facts, one of the indisputable objective uh, bits of evidence would be videos of January 6th and what happened up on the Capitol. And so we made a a request, uh, filed a uh, request for the release from Capitol Police of all the videos they had on January 6th. Uh, please let our listeners know what happened after we had gone into court to try to get those videos. You know, Congress uh, is exempted from FOIA. The FOIA law that people know about that applies to the executive branch doesn't apply to Congress, and that's on purpose. Uh, but there's a there's a common law right of public access to government documents. It's a law that predates the Constitution. People have a right to see documents, right? With and reason, and within reason means like videos of the worst day in American history, according to the left. Uh, emails among the police department of Capitol Hill about that day, what was going on, basic information. We're not asking for secret email communications among members of Congress about the liberations on a bill, you know, that may not be covered by this type of common law right of public access. But this is public records. And what they've come back and said, no, these aren't public records. And even if they were, there's no public interest in having them released. And, 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 and they even go back further than that. And they say, we have sovereign immunity, meaning you can't sue us because we haven't given you permission to sue under the law. Just incredible arrogance. So you have January 6th rump committee that Pelosi has put out there uh, pushing to jail those who raise privileges against their dragnet and fishing expeditions. Uh, but when we ask for basic information about that day, uh, they're citing all sorts of privileges to hide that information from the American people. And it's all designed to protect themselves. I mean, if it was helpful, it would be released. I mean, that's kind of your, you should be your rule of thumb. Correct. If you have to fight for documents, it usually means there's something to hide. Right. Not all the time, because there's a bit of a government incompetence uh, sometimes in just dealing with the FOIA laws. But in this case, Congress is desperate to hold the documents back and the videos back, uh, so much so that we're battling and battling them in federal court for about a year now. This is really insidious. Um, so the rationale for, for this, you call it a rump committee, I call it a sort of a kangaroo court because... It, it, they're not they're not operating under any legitimate normal way in which a committee uh, is is organized and operates. 
it's it's on par with sort of the uh, the shift uh, type committees where they operate in secret. They selectively issue their own subpoenas, demanding information. There's a lot of weird shenanigans with the, with how the committee was formed and how it operates, and various legal claims they're making. Where you know if, if you don't agree with them 100 percent and roll over and uh, just you know not even exert your 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 normal constitutional rights. They, they have an inkling or they have sort of a, a, a desire to pursue criminal claims against you. It's really a, it's a remarkable set of activities going on with that with that committee. So they want to control the narrative. They're interested in in telling the story their way. And uh, we come in and say, look, just put all the evidence on the table. If, if what you said is true and if it's if it all played out the way that you said, well, if we look at all the video, that's very objective. Everybody gets a clean, fresh look at all the information that's out there. And the fact that they're resisting that, to me, that speaks volumes. Yeah, I mean, Pelosi is, the, is actually the enemy of transparency on January 6th. And of course, it's Schumer, too, because this is a joint congressional um, position they have. Right. You know, the good news is that there are other ways of getting skinning cat there. You know, we've got documents and we got video, for instance, from the D.C. Police Department uh, and their investigative files about the uh, needless shooting death of Ashley Babbitt by uh, Lieutenant Byrd, who uh, popped out from behind a column and fired, it looks like, blindly into a crowd, and killed Ashley Babbitt, which is completely right. outrageous shooting that was uh, that is still being covered up by both Congress and the Justice Department. Uh, and, you know, Judicial Watch was the one that uncovered all of that. And all the it, documents about the January 6th prep and security uh, from the feds as well, showing that they all knew that there was going to be a big crowd in front of the Capitol. Of course, everybody knew that was going to be the case. But those responsible for security knew, and yet nothing was done. And I, you know, I just so want, those, that's the kind of the basic January 6th investigation that we're doing while the the rump committee harasses witnesses to try to figure out how it is they can um uh, best prepare for the 2022 and 2024 elections. That's really what it's about. I mean, two things I want to get across here. Number one, all of the documentation that Tom has made reference to uh, concerning January 6th, uh, concerning the Ashley Babbitt shooting, the records, the reports, the interviews, everything that's been made public uh, is on our website at judicialwatch.org, O-R-G. You can go there and look at these documents and records for yourself. So even if you're listening to us now and you say, well, I don't understand that or I don't necessarily agree with what they've said. Or you know, maybe the shooting was not what it, what it appears to be. OK, great. Go and look at the records for yourself. Read them. We have the original source materials, the government records and documents. You look at them for yourself. You read through them. And you can draw your own conclusions. Now, obviously, Tom and I have a have a point of view on this, so we're not shy about it. But when you look at the records and documents for yourself, the evidence points in only one direction. And for example, if you go in and look at what uh, Lieutenant Byrd, the man who shot Ashley Babbitt, when you look at what he said in the investigation and in the interviews surrounding that entire issue, at no point anywhere does Byrd say. I feared for my life or I feared for the life of someone else 
and I had to protect them. Therefore, I used deadly force. And that, my friends, that is the threshold for the use of deadly force. You have to be able to articulate a fear for your own life and safety or for that of somebody else. And the circumstances are so severe and so threatening that you had to use that level of force to protect yourself or someone else. And at no point anywhere in any of the documentation does Lieutenant Byrd say that. And that fact is essentially ignored. Well, and, hey, and Chris, he doesn't say anything. He didn't cooperate. Another, another important fact. <laughs> He did not cooperate, right? I mean, what, what does that tell you? What is that? Anybody looking at this, read the materials for yourself. Go and take a look. And uh, it, it, is, it is unlike any other police shooting. Look, there have been cities in America burned to the ground, neighborhoods looted, all sorts of violence connected to uh, police force and police uh, shootings, police conduct, arrests. Just look at the last two years and look at all the turmoil in the United States related to police use of force and violence. And you can have all sorts of opinions about whether it was just or unjust or whether the protests were commensurate with the level of threat. I mean, there's all sorts of contentious uh, public interest in, in those in that police conduct. There's been a move to defund police entirely. Um, and now look at this one shooting and the conduct of Lieutenant Byrd and the shooting of an unarmed uh, five foot two, hundred pound female who's braced up in a windowsill. And ask yourself if there's a commensurate or, or any sort of disparity in the conduct or the activities of of police and or protests following it. It is a very, very interesting question. Yeah, I mean, and, and the other big issue, uh, it's kind of tied to this, is that the US Capitol Hill police is unaccountable. It's a congressional agency that has none of the transparency and accountability measures in place that any other uh, big police department or small police department in the country has. I don't even let, think the federal, I don't even think federal law enforcement uh, is so uh, unaccountable. I'm talking about the FBI and things like that. I know practically speaking, they can be, but at least there are rules in place. I'm not aware the Capitol Hill police has any accountability or transparency requirements that virtually every other law enforcement agency in the country has. And on top of that, now Pelosi is using this police agency to spy on members, staff, and constituents, donors of members, and um, you know, turning it into an intelligence arm uh, in a way that uh, is is unbelievably disconcerting. I mean, to have a police agency tied to a political party like this in the legislature—that's uh, that's that's how you lose a republic. So she's on the record. Nancy Pelosi's on the record in a video press conference. I've seen the video several times uh, just in the last couple of days where she claimed that she has no control whatsoever over the Capitol Police. So, Tom, let's let's square that up. That's her claim on on the record. And you just finished describing her using the police as basically a political uh, intelligence arm. 
explain how that's so. Well, it's all for security, right, Chris? Right. And so uh, because they're using the pretext of January 6th as an excuse for the U.S. Capitol Hill police to become an, an internal uh, intelligence, uh, an intelligence gatherer of whatever for so they're they're, they're, they're the tracking Congress. they're tracking who's coming into the Capitol office buildings and visiting which members of Congress. Is that correct? Well, that it goes even worse than that. They're tracking who members of Congress are visiting when they go traveling. So uh, how, how, so, how are they, how are they, how do we know that? And how are they doing that? Well, you know, if you believe Politico, uh, we know it's happening and we know it's also happening because there are people in the Capitol Hill police department who don't like the idea of them doing it. So you've had whistleblowers come forward to highlight this intelligence gathering. Look, there was a member of Congress a few weeks ago, Congressman Neils from Texas, you know, who was visited by these goons. Um, after a police officer for the Capitol Hill Police went into his office and photographed his private legislative material. So this uh, this goes beyond, uh, you know, the FBI looking at uh, somebody like Dollar Bill Washington down in Louisiana with his, his blocks of $100 bills in his freezer and them going into his office to try to see if he was engaged in any other criminal activity. This is the uh, this is really a fishing expedition to identify people that are opposed to the January 6th uh, committee who have been critical of Pelosi's heavy handedness. This is really sort of like a political enemies list that's being targeted and they're using the Capitol Police to collect intelligence on them. Is that a fair assessment? That's exactly right. And um... You know, we can try to get information about what's going on, but we already know what the legal position of the Congress is, right? Pelosi's Congress is uh, no oversight by the American people uh, directly over the police department that uh, Pelosi is using to spy on the American people. So, Tom, as, as we wrap up, I just want to touch on one additional topic on the way out the door here. And we've seen some really extraordinary uh, conduct and behavior uh, that, you know, I, I hope I hope uh, Biden staff don't get any bright ideas from this. But uh, it seems that uh, that uh, Justin Trudeau up to our north in Canada has really gone off the rails with this various emergency act uh, moves on his part to crack down on on peaceful demonstrators up in up in Ottawa. And uh, what's what stunned me, first of all, Trudeau seems like he's become a, a little mini dictator. But what's more disturbing to me is you don't hear a peep of criticism out of the Biden administration for what's going on to, with our good friends up north in Canada. Give us a, a little bit of context, not just on Trudeau's weird authoritarian behavior, but the fact that you don't hear a peep from the Biden administration. Look, there's a there's a there's a national law in Canada that allows uh, the prime minister, evidently, to invoke to to uh, declare an emergency that would restrict the freedoms of individuals. And as you might imagine, it was I think designed for real emergencies like an invasion and things like that. Instead, you had civil protests, civil disobedience, 
that became a law enforcement problem for them. So they decided to eliminate the civil liberties and under and and confiscate property of those involved. A, a complete abuse of power, tyranny. Now, what people don't understand, or a few people understand, is that the Biden administration encouraged, encouraged this type of activity, uh, told, told the Trudeau government they, they need to crack down. Uh, you had the Democratic governor of Michigan offer to send heavy equipment across the, uh, the, the major bridge connecting uh, Canada to Michigan and, and our car, you know, supplying our car industries. You know, we were going to, you had a state governor willing to send you uh, taxpayer personnel into another country to clear protesters. So, you know, look, we've lost Canada to tyranny. It, it, it's it, the, 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 Rubicon, the Rubicon has been, has been crossed by Trudeau. Now, the fear we should have is that the leftists in our country are taking notes. Uh, we see Joe Biden uh, using DHS, and I'm sure you've talked about this on the podcast and elsewhere before, to spy on and target uh, those who oppose CRT. And more recently, they've denoted as a terrorist threat uh, those of us who are concerned about election integrity and COVID abuses. So, uh, you know, I, I don't see much of a difference beyond between Biden and Trudeau and outlook. Obviously, the policies always are different. Uh, but these are dangerous times for our freedoms and our civil liberties. I mean, when, when our closest trading partner, our closest ally, I mean, it's our closest ally, not, it's not UK, it's Canada, and our neighbor falls to tyranny, uh, we should be very nervous as a country. It's a horrible precedent. And the fact that there hasn't been a, a peep out of the State Department or out of the, out of the Biden White House saying, at least raising a cautionary flag and saying, wow, this is really extraordinary. I mean, you could just make a, an observation of fact. You don't necessarily have to come out and condemn the guy because he's a, their political ally, but you can, make a, you can raise a legitimate concern and we haven't heard a syllable from them. Uh, you know, like you just said a moment ago, all, my worry is they're taking notes. They're saying, oh, look, this is, uh, this is how you do it. This is the language you use. This is the way that you sort of uh, self-certify that you're doing the right thing. And this is how you squish. This is how you press back on any kind of opposition, uh, you know, Heaven forbid that that's, uh, that's what they're doing. But as you point out, Tom, it's, uh, it is alarming. Um, listen, this has uh, been a great hour discussion. We've covered lots of interesting uh, topics about Judicial Watch's work, giving our listeners some background, some insights into the stuff we're doing, how we're doing it. Uh, and you're getting it directly from uh, the leadership. We've been talking to Tom Fitton, the president of Judicial Watch, He's given us his views, his understanding, and really uh, special insight into all sorts of topics, whether it has to do with the Durham investigation, court victories in North Carolina to clean up voting rolls, uh, our trial out in California, uh, trying to stop what is really a critical race theory on steroids, not race theory, but critical gender theory on steroids about corporate boards our work concerning January 6th and, and really what scary behavior in Canada might 
foretell for our own civil liberties here in the United States. Um, Tom, thank you for your time. Thank you for your insights. We really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you, Chris. Good to be with you. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, and I hope that you have, please follow us and rate us, rate this podcast on Watch, the Judicial Watch podcast uh, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, any of the platforms that you find your favorite, uh, your favorite podcasts on out there. Please subscribe to us and leave us a rating. Uh, we appreciate your efforts to take time out to join us to listen and learn about our work here at Judicial Watch. I'm Chris Farrell on Watch. Thanks for listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast. For more information, visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law.